You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Good morning, Richard Watts with you here for another edition of Smart Arts, taking you through till midday today. As always, big thanks to the Breakfasters. They'll be back with you tomorrow morning between 6 and 9. And on the show today... We're going to be finding out about a new project that's happening at the NGV, uh, featuring Indonesian artists making work for kids. Uh, then a little bit later, we're going to be chatting to a German artist, uh, Thomas Kerner, a sound artist who's uh, coming out to Australia for the Audi Festival of German Films. He's going to be playing a live score to F.W. Murnau's 1926 classic, uh, silent classic, Faust. Uh, so we're going to be chatting to him about Faust, silent movies, scoring silent movies and uh, the state of health of German cinema, amongst other things. Uh, 10.15, uh, we're going to chat with uh, Angela Conquer, the uh, director of Dance House, who've uh, just recently launched their kind of overview program for the rest of the year. On the theatre front, there's a production called The Exonerated, which is looking at the very timely issue of uh, life on death row and capital punishment. Plus, although this is a radio program based in Melbourne and looking predominantly at what's going on in Melbourne, I like to occasionally look further afield, such as what's happening in Bendigo, Ballarat, Benalla, Shepparton, or in this instance, Hobart. We're going to find out about the Festival of Voices, which just recently launched its program for this year's festival, which is happening in Hobart from the 2nd to the 12th of July. And our Dancing on the Radio segment returns this fortnight with Gerard Van Dyke and Joe Lloyd, and uh, we'll have a couple of shows to chat about, including, I suspect, a review of Rotunda, the recent show by the New Zealand Dance Company, uh, which I know both Gerard and I saw, and also Sydney Dance Company's most recent work. So we'll be reviewing those and previewing some more of what's coming up. So uh, a bit of dance on the show today, amongst other art forms. If you've been hearing about the cuts made to the Australia Council budget by Senator Brandis, the Federal Minister for the Arts, then there's a couple of things you can do if these cuts concern you. Now, just a little bit of backstory to what's going on. Senator Brandis has cut money from the Australia Council to take to a personal fund uh, that will be supervised by him and his office to reward, quote-unquote, excellence, which is a bit of a backhander to the Australia Council for a number of reasons. One, because it suggests that the work that they fund is not excellent. Uh, And two, it means that because Senator Brandis has quarantined the Australia Council funding for the major performing arts group, that means that the money has been taken out from the funding used to support the small to medium sector and the creation of new work by independent artists, which means it's the grassroots that will suffer. And if you kill off the roots, as we all know what happens to the tree it dies so this is concerning for a number of reasons so you can read more about it at uh, some uh, great articles that uh, my friend and colleague over at arts hub has written ben eltham has been writing some great commentary on this issue both at arts hub and for the drum uh, at the abc and elsewhere there's quite a
quite a lot of commentary about it if you uh, want some background. But there is a, a uh, over at australianunions.org.au, uh, there is an open letter to Senator George Brandis protesting those cuts. Uh, you can sign that petition if you so desire. Uh, go to www.australianunions.org.au forward slash Australians underscore four underscore artistic underscore freedom. Or alternatively, Google Australians for Artistic Freedom Petition uh, and you will f- find that petition at australianunions.org.au it's also being supported by Overland Uh, you can go to Overland's website and sign the petition there as well but if you care about artistic excellence and independence and Australian creativity uh, being supported then I urge you to sign that letter there is a demo happening in Melbourne tomorrow, I'll have a little bit more details on that later, Uh, it's happening around the country in fact so if I can sometime between now and 12, I haven't scheduled an interview but I might try and track down one of the spokespeople slash organisers of that national uh, rally in protest to the cuts to the Australia Council budget and see if we can line up an impromptu interview to talk about it in a little more detail. Three Triple R is the station you're tuned to. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. Just before those announcements, we heard from Brooklyn Outfit, A Place to Bury Strangers, and the track that we played was Deeper, off their latest album, Transfixiation. Now... If you were in at the NGV a few months ago, you may have seen a fantastic exhibition which appealed equally to adults and children, and that was Express Yourself, Romance Was Born for Kids. The National Gallery of Victoria are now building on the success of that exhibition with a new exhibition also created for children, uh, Open House Traumarama for Kids is created by a trio of artists from Indonesia who go by the name of Traumarama. One of them joins me on the line now. Fabi Baby Rose, good morning. Hi, good morning. So the exhibition that you've created is an upside-down house in many ways, uh, an immersive, playful environment for children to explore in, in, and also participate in. Tell us a little bit more about the project. Yeah, like the NGV invite us to make this um, open house, the Traumarama for Kids exhibition, so like the kids could experience like um, stop motion animation, but also with the huge installations of the upside down house. So like every section of uh, of a common house, there will be inside the gallery, but uh, the team um, make it like more. Um, immersive and then more playful for kids. How important is it for you as an artist to expose children, particularly perhaps young children, to art, to encourage them, uh, to encourage their imagination, to encourage them to play, but also to engage with art at the same time? Is that a, a key part of your work as an artist or just one part of your artistic practice? Maybe maybe it's uh, one part for from our art practice because uh we try to make our artworks like playful so like an adults or kids they could enjoy our arts 
And then it's very important also for us, uh, arts as an education, of course, because maybe in uh, our country, like uh, art is not uh, such a special education for kids. So in here, it's very uh, like a privilege for kids to have their own art education in school or in the gallery also. Now, part of the artworks that you've created, as you've said, are stop-motion animation, which it's a very time-consuming uh, way to to make a short film and to animate yeah. everyday objects, lamps, shoes, crockery. Why do you choose to work with stop-animation? Yeah, maybe because um, it's very different right now. Uh, at 2006, when we started to make like the stop-motion animation, like... Uh, we not uh, we don't have any computer at that time. We only have like a small um, computer, and then they just uh, it's just like a common uh, the casual computer, not like right now. Uh, and right now, like you could have like everything, like you have your um, very modern technology in your house. But at 2006, we don't have it, so we want to make like something very simple but using only our hands to make like everything moving so the computers is only there to guide uh, our animations but everything we did it by our own hands because um, yeah we want to giving the everyday objects like soul to make them life so it, in some ways, it's almost like puppetry, uh, yeah. animating the everyday and I, the way a puppeteer can bring life to an everyday inanimate object. You're doing the same, uh, but through stop-motion animation, which perhaps also then will inspire children to explore their own filmmaking techniques as well. Yes, yes, that's right. Now, the the stop-motion videos are a key part of the exhibition, but as we've said, um, they're screening within a series of five fully furnished rooms, a kitchen, a dining room, a courtyard, a bedroom, a bathroom, uh, which, again, you're, you're playing with the familiar, those rooms, by, for example, turning them upside down mm-hmm. so, so kids can dance on the ceiling with the furniture suspended above them. Beyond the playful aspect of the work, what are you trying to, to say with this exhibition and with that inversion of the everyday? Yeah, maybe we want to encourage kids that uh, uh, you can do anything uh, inside your house, like explore your imagination or explore your creativity part and then um, take everything in your house and then make something make something playful and then make something creative like um, do uh, fulfill your imagination like um, yeah maybe like that uh, is the the work perhaps also a commentary on your own life, given yeah. that as adults we don't have time to play anymore? We, we get so caught up in work and paying bills that the playfulness of life that we have as children is forgotten and pushed aside. Yes, that's right. That's, just, that's some part of that in our works, like how as an adult uh, we see only the maturity, uh, maturity of, uh, of our lives, like... It happens like every day, like we working, we knew about value of everything, like sometimes it's become like the boundaries to our, um, to find the meaning of life.
Now, while uh, Open House Tromarama for Kids is is showing, which is from the 23rd of May uh, through until the 18th of October, uh-huh. um, I understand you're. Will you be offering some uh, some workshops and uh, chances to for the kids to speak with you and ask you questions directly about the work? Yeah, at 24th May this week, uh, we're having the NGV teams. Uh, Tromarama will talk in there, and then you could ask like some questions. So that's happening this Sunday uh, from 2 till 3 p.m. Yeah. Uh, as part of the NGV public program. Now, there is a booking fee for that. It's a $13 for students to attend uh, that uh, workshop and meet the artist's program. But the exhibition itself, Open House Tromarama for Kids, entry is free to yeah. that exhibition. And for more information, you can go to ngv.vic.gov.au. Open House Tromarama for Kids at NGV International on St Kilda Road from the 23rd of May until the 18th of October. Fabi Baby, Baby Rose, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I'm joined in the studio by Angela Conquer, the Artistic Director and CEO of Dance House, who are located in Princess Street, Carlton. We chat about Dance House a bit on the show, and Angela, it's nice to catch up with you again. Thank you, Richard, for having me. My very great pleasure. And uh, now, you've just recently launched an exquisite-looking object, a beautiful piece of design, which is also a, a program for what's happening at Dance House in the rest of 2015. Without wanting to sound too critical, it does seem a bit late in the year to launch a 2015 program. Well, you know, we were very busy earlier in the year, as you, as you very well know. You there was something massive. massive happening there, and Indeed. we were, and there was no need to launch the dance massive program because it was already kind of massively out there. Um, and um, yeah, we also took our time because we wanted to um, craft this very um, nice object. I'm glad you like it. Um, it's really conceived as, a, uh, of course, it's the program uh, for 2015, but also also, um, the program contained um, in this object, which basically is a, a series of, um, of postcards um, wrapped up in, a, in a, another beautiful piece of paper. And I guess the, the idea behind it was to um, um, invite whoever is taking it to pause for a second and interact with it and, and take the time to go through it. So um, probably it goes at the very opposite of what's happening today in the world, you know, digital, social media things. We wanted to go paper. Yeah. Uh, but it's recycled. Well, there we go. Uh, but because, yes, it does give you a moment to pause and reflect as you kind of open the packaging and unfold it. Uh, so this quite kind of thick cardboard stock, uh, beautifully printed imagery. Uh, and so then it's not only an object, a palpable object that you can hold and consider, um, but unlike a lot of programs uh, which are printed on, on cheap paper stock and thrown away shortly after a festival or lost on the coffee table amongst kind of mugs and CDs and everything else, this is definitely an object to hold and consider and hang on to because it is beautifully designed but then it tells you about the program at Dance House in Carlton. Absolutely. The the actual cards, uh, you know, we imagine that everyone would have them on their fridge or, you know, on their coffee table um, and um, I think um, the team at Dance House beautifully uh, put it, you know, we said we wanted something that holds the time and something where you can feel the thought so the text that you have on the back of the cards are really like um, very similar to what you'd have on the, you know, back cover of a book, um, which is telling you just enough for you to um, 
stir the curiosity and invite you to know more, even if you don't necessarily come and see the show. Just, you know, that second when you just sit a little bit with yourself and maybe have a think about, you know, the moving body and the rest of the world and how we sit in, in this beautiful world with our bodies. Now, for people who aren't familiar with Dance House, how do you describe it to them? Because obviously people within the dance sector are aware of Dance House as um, a place of residency, of creativity, of development, which also then stages and presents work as well as assisting in the development of the work. But for people who aren't from the dance sector, when, when you say, I'm the artistic director and CEO of Dance House... How do you position Dance House? How do you explain it to to non-artists? Well, usually I have like two minutes and a half to talk about it because people are, you know, I could talk forever. But uh, I think it's very very simple. I usually say this is the house, you know, where independent artists um, work on dance. Um, This is where it's contemporary dance is being sought and made and performed. Um, And this is where you can start um, with a Probably there's no better introduction to a contemporary dance show. Um, And I always, always say, don't necessarily expect to be entertained. It's not about entertainment. It's about something else. Or it can be about entertainment, but not only. And and that in itself presents an interesting challenge for a lot of people because that... T- turns about the the approach that a lot of people uh, in perhaps the more general public have to art. They expect art uh, and entertainment to be the same thing. And indeed, you see in most newspapers, it's called the entertainment pages, not the art section, which is why I find The Guardian interesting, for example, because they call that section culture uh, and look at it more broadly. But the fact that you're saying this is not necessarily going to be entertaining that prepares people for for something other than easily digestible simple work absolutely and i think um surprisingly enough it really works i think what we um um what we try to promote there it's the idea that um art is really there and contemporary dance probably because these people have the ability i think to really trigger those um i guess those moments it's it's really about allowing yourself the space to be um to to feel with the mind and with the senses and to um, to allow yourself even to be a little bit challenged or needled or um, even if it's taking you um, somewhere where you don't necessarily like, it's particularly important to understand why you didn't like because it usually tells you something about yourself or maybe the, you know, uh, the wider world out there. And, you know, with contemporary dance... Um, it's so much in the now. Maybe that's why we put dance now on the cover. It's so in the now that it's about uh, the immediacy with which you can engage with the art form. And it's that moment that we want to craft to tell you um, probably it's this moment where we connect the mind with the body. And um, and the moving body is mine, is yours, is everyone's. And um, we're all active participants in this world. And probably this art form highlights this um, beautifully. Now, talk to us about some of the events that are coming up at Dance House in the coming months, because this is one of the, the purposes that a program serves, is to, uh, to, as you say, this program in the form of postcards that people can put on their fridge to remind them to go and see ooh, something that I know, a photographic uh, exhibition coming up in June, for example, or a, a performance by Sarah Aitken in July. But tell us about some of the highlights that you have coming up. Look, it's as massive as Dance Massive. Um, uh, yes, indeed, a photographic exhibition in June um, by one of our most outstanding photographers here in Melbourne who has been documenting dance works um, in the past um, three years. He's presenting his um, um, 
photo, beautiful photographic landscapes. Sarah Aiken, who's our artist in residence, you probably remember her from the Key Award or from Overworld, um, the piece she did in Dance Massive. She's presenting a new piece called Set, uh, a piece about um, bodies and objects, maybe to remind us that we're human still, somehow. Um, and some very, very uh, outstanding, remarkable international guests. I would start with uh, Donna Okizono from, the, um, from New York with a wonderful piece about, inspired by her 12 um, years in de- endeavor to adopt a Nepalese child. It's a it's an outstanding piece, um, Bessie award-winning winning piece. It's it's really it's amazing. Uh, Arco Renz from Belgium, um, another another beautiful piece with uh, Melanie Lay, by the way, and a Javanese court dancer. I strongly recommend. It's a piece about um, how change ultimately and very intimately destabilizes humans, human beings. And um, last but not least, and probably probably our biggest surprise, because it's not there yet, but it's going to be a card soon, um, the, the very famous French dance guru, uh, Xavier Leroy, is coming from Sydney to Melbourne for three weeks, and uh, we're privileged enough to present his um, seminal piece, Self Unfinished, in December. So people who pick up the Dance House program can add additional cards to the set. They, yep. can be, they, they might become collectibles, traded eagerly by dance aficionados at conferences around the world. We'll see, we'll see. You just need big fridges. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Angela, as an artistic director of Dance House, how do you you find these shows? How do you assemble a program? Tell us about that. Uh, It's a lot of thinking and it's a lot of um, um, of course it's a lot of thinking and a lot of, um, uh, you know, I would love to do so much more but then it comes down to what you realistically can do. Um, it's a lot of uh, traveling. It's a lot of um, um, it's a lot of seeing many many shows in Australia and around the world to understand what makes sense for the context here. Um, yeah, and and very often for um, the um, Australian curated pieces, it's um, it's. Um, it's a peer panel decision. You may have heard that principle before, um, but it works very well. And um, yeah, um, for the housemate decisions and for the for the dance massive, for instance, um, uh, programs, it's uh, it's always a conversation and it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, for more information about what is happening at Dance House in Carlton, you can go to www.dancehouse.com.au or indeed pick up the beautifully designed program emblazoned with the words dance now um, uh, on its front cover of the package open it up unfold it and explore now Angela you just talked about uh, the notion of peer assessment Uh, let's segue for a moment from talking about Dance House to uh, the decision by uh, Minister for the Arts Senator George Brandis to take money away from the Australia Council where it is um, distributed thanks to peer review artists assessing artists and assessing the validity of their work Um, he's sequestering that funding for his own program for excellence. Um, what's the response from the arts community has not been a positive one, it would be fair to say. Absolutely. I think um, I think the concern in the in the independent sector is not so much about um, the, the minister's decision to set up this um, this new fund. I mean, you know, the more the better and you know, why not perhaps um, perhaps some projects can be completely, you know, assessed by according to other criteria. I do think sometimes the peer um, assessment um, um, system can be faulty and I think Australia Council have just recently looked into it and um, I, I feel like they have improved a few things. I guess the concern is that that pool of money um, 
taken away from Australia Council to inject into this other fund is, um, whichever way you look at it, is specifically money dedicated to the independent sector, individual artists and small to medium um, arts organisations. And I think probably where I'm really concerned is that um, I feel that uh, Minister Brandis um, doesn't necessarily believe in the individual artists and the small to medium sector. I think it's um, it's great to have a, a, a wonderful landscape of major arts organisations and um, flagship um, projects, you know, large-scale audience-appealing projects. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Where I'm slightly concerned is that... Um, I feel that Minister Brandis probably thinks that the excellence is only in those bigger arts organisations, and I would say, well, perhaps excellence is there, but what he may be interested in considering is that excellence starts in the independent sector. And in a healthy arts ecology, the major arts organisations feed on and work with um, the independent sector and if one is um, suffering the others the other part of the sector will suffer as well um, and I guess it's you know it's a, it translates something that's very um, uh, very much in in tune with our with our current society it's we invest in big things visible things um you know mind-blowing things that that we don't look that um you know individual artists and smaller organizations generate the vibrancy that keeps the rest going and um probably this is this is why you have so many people concerned it's certainly uh, one of the reasons we use the phrase the arts ecology is because it is so interlinked and as we know from uh, a, a biological economy such as a, a rainforest if you kind of take out one element there are ripple effects and other elements Absolutely. suffer so, Absolutely. and that is certainly one of the concerns facing the Australian art sector at the moment so there is a demonstration tomorrow by artists to protest uh, Senator Brandis's uh, changes to the Australia Council funding model and the risk that those changes present to the small to medium sector and independent artists can you tell us a little bit more about that demo? Absolutely it's happening um, all over Australia in all capital cities um, I think it started with, um, with uh, Sydney uh, Sydney artists and then it grew bigger and bigger. Uh, in Melbourne tomorrow it's at 130 uh, Aka Court and um, I think there's already um, I don't know how many people who have announced their participation um, at dancers we're providing the leading art- artists who of course uh, learned the one minute and a half of dance uh, very quickly and they're there to lead the, the, the crowds um, and I think it's a great initiative. Uh, it may not mean much but I think it's good to reiterate that um, um, that you know, um, arts is so you know the art sector is so multi-layered, and it's important to um, to think probably a little bit longer term and to um, you know to envision maybe um, a cultural policy or whatever system that um, you know Minister Brandes is concerned with today. I think he should um, just uh, look a little bit further into the future and um, try to see what next when he will no longer be there. What will happen with this excellence fund? You know, what's um, What's, what's the vision for the arts and culture in the Australian society? And that's not what I'm hearing very much. Yeah, so it would be good to have some more long-term foresight and planning. And, Absolutely. Uh, and join the dance 
tomorrow. Yes. So uh, if uh, you are an artist or a, an arts lover concerned about these changes to the, uh, the the funding process and the risk that those change, changes present to independent artists and the small to medium sector, then yes, uh, as you've heard from Angela, 1.30pm tomorrow at the forecourt of ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Sturt Street, Southbank, there will be a dance protest. So 1.30pm tomorrow. Uh, I think I might try and get along to that myself. You're a wonderful dancer, Richard. We know that. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Maybe after a couple of wines on a dance floor late at night. But We can arrange that. We can arrange that. <laughs> uh, not while I'm working. Uh, there is also a petition you can sign uh, that is being hosted by Overland and the uh, uh, Australian unions, the uh, a petition Australians for Artistic Freedom. If you Google that, uh, you can find that and add your name to the list. But uh, to briefly reiterate, the program for Dance House for the rest of 2015 is out now. It is a beautifully designed object, uh, attractively packaged, beautiful postcards detailing the uh, the many programs, not just the public programs, but the workshop programs, residencies and more that happen in Dance House, which is located at 150 Princess Street in Carlton North. More info at www.dancehouse.com.au. Angela Conke, thank you very much for joining Thank you, Richard. Joining me in the studio from company Soul 3, we have its artistic director, Andre Shilachan, who uh, is joining us to talk about a production called The Exonerated on at Chapel Off Chapel. Now, uh, Andre, this is a, um, a, a timely production in many ways, uh, given that it's uh, exploring the stories of uh, people on death row. Uh, timely, uh, yeah, it is timely, I suppose, in a, in a bad way, but also in a good way, I, I presume, by the, by the ideas that it can raise about what happened over in Indonesia and, uh, um, I, I suppose, uh, broaden people's horizons and, and, and how they treat the death penalty. So, yeah, it, it really is, it really is a great time for the show to be on because, um, uh, our production just, it, it just reveals, uh, what happens on death row, even for innocent people, and then how they come out and how they view the death penalty, you know, that they're, they're against it too, despite the fact that, They've been put away for somebody else's murder, and when they find the actual killers, they're against, they're still against those people taking it. And uh, and it'd be good for people to come in and see why they're against it, because we're very detached from that. So I think the play is is very timely, um, and I hope it, it really does raise some awareness for those just for death for the death penalty all over the world. The fact that you've just the the very fact that you've mentioned that innocent people are often on death row, and sometimes it can be obviously twenty years of appeals and so forth, and then they can be. It, it turns out that they have been wrongly convicted in the first place. That, to me, is just one of many reasons why the death penalty uh, should be abolished, because you, there is that element of risk that you have got the wrong person. So I don't think that... Can, but then I also don't think state-sanctified murder can ever be really justified. Kind of, you murder someone for murdering someone? It's, it's, it seems kind of bizarre to yeah, me. Yeah, it's like the gun... You know, um, uh, an eye for an eye makes, makes the whole world blind. Um, but that's the, that's the thing with the death penalty. There's always room for error, especially when the justice system is is um, is controlled by humans, especially when we've got the conflict within ourselves. You see, so um, we really don't have a right to ask somebody to kill for us. I believe if people if people want to uh, really believe in the death penalty and want to see it through, they must be prepared to 
crank the lever themselves. You really don't have a, you have a right to ask someone to kill for you. Especially when you go and hear what happens uh, to the executioners 20 years later and they're all suffering from PTSD and uh, you know, and all these kind of things. Um, it's really horrific what we ask them to do, even if they don't know it at the time. You know, I heard one executioner say that every time he killed a person, he was killing a part of himself. And he only realised that 20 years later, but by then it's too late. So. Now, the production that you're presenting, The Exonerated, uh, is this a piece of documentary theatre in that it's mm-hmm. based on real life uh, and real conversations with people who have been on death row? Yeah, yeah. Everything, everything that is in the play has all been taken from real life. So Jessica and Eric, the people who wrote the play, they ran around to America um, and interviewed maybe about 150 people that were exonerated. And then they chose the six people which had, the, I suppose, the strongest stories. And then everything they've said in that interview in their living room has been transplanted in, into the play. And all the manuscripts from the, from the police records of interrogations and the courts, they've all been taken from the manuscripts. So everything you hear in the play is, is all real life. It's, it's basically what's called a docudrama, like a documentary. Um, but really what I've done is I've taken the play into, a, into Ruben Hurricane Carter's living room, which is my inspiration and my, and my mentor. So it's like stepping into that world. It's very intimate, very, very intimate piece. Tell us a little bit more about Reuben Hurricane Carter, who he is and how you met him. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think a lot of people here know who Reuben is. I know America, if you just say Reuben Carter, everyone goes, oh, yeah, we know him. But uh, if you're not aware, he was the middleweight, um, he, he was the middleweight champion boxer back in like 1965, if I'm, if I'm, yeah, I think that's right. He was then, he was in and out of jail his whole life. And then around the age of 32, he was wrong, he was again wrongfully convicted for triple homicide. He spent 19 years in jail and, and I suppose what you, what I'd call he, he transcended the, the walls that held him back. He was able to find a sense of himself in there. Perhaps he may not have done that if he was on the outside, but anyway, he found himself on the inside and he, when he got, a, when he got, released when he got exonerated he he began a company called innocence international which was to help wrongfully convicted people and also hold people accountable like prosecutors who had done prosecutorial misconduct um, and hold them accountable for what they've done so he started innocence international and he um this person called david mccallum iii who i named my theatre company after, he wrote a letter to him 10 years ago, just a letter, a letter in the bowl, threw it out to sea, and Reuben answered. And Reuben took on his case and started fighting for him for 10 years. He then wrote a book called Out of the Hurricane, um, and it had David's, a little bit of David's story just in, um, at, the, at the end of the book, and that's when I found out about David, and, that's, and, that's, and then I wrote to Reuben saying, you know, just how much of an inspiration he was, and then he wrote back to me, and um, he gave me David's address. And then from that point, that was when I started writing to David, and that's just how this production began, because when I went to, to New York, that's where I discovered the play The Exonerated the morning I went to visit him face-to-face. Um, yeah. So obviously this is a production that uh, you are deeply invested in personally, emotionally, um, uh, and even from a, a, philosoph- a philosophical standpoint as well. You've put a lot into this production. Yeah. What are you hoping it will achieve, that people will go and see this not just as a night of, uh, of entertainment, not just as, a, as, a, as an artwork, but something that will what, transform them, change them, at the very least, make them think more deeply about the issues the play explores. Yeah, well, I was kind of wondering that because uh, the venue asked, "Do we want champagne after the play?" I'm like, "Yeah, it may, it may not. Death Row may not be something to celebrate." But 
Um, what I've really tried to do with this play and what I want people to come out feeling is that sense of transcendence that Reuben and David discovered while they're in prison and now over to come adversity. I want people when they come and see um, the production to feel that they, they, that they have the same light within themselves and the same strength. Uh, if they are faced with that own, with that own adversity, that they can overcome that too. So really, what I'm trying to find, what I'm trying to bring out with this play is the humor and the light, and um, and the inspiration that that you can find within yourself if you really look within yourself. So really, it is a piece about self self knowledge, um, uh, and inspiration, and it, it goes from very 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 dark places to very very light places. So that's that's what I hope people um, will come out of the play. It's, it doesn't preach about the death penalty. It just it just speaks the truth from what these people have, have encountered and their opinions on it. And it, and hopefully at the end of the play, it will just leave people maybe a bit more aware. Uh, perhaps they might ask questions. But my job is not to change people's opinions. You can never change a person's opinion. You, that That is up to them. All I can do now is just hopefully just provide the truth that is which is basically the truth from, from the real-life circumstances and, and give that to them and, and let them make their own decisions. Who are the creative team that, uh, that you're working on this? Tell us about some of the actors you've got involved with the production and some of the other behind-the-scenes team. Oh, we've, it's quite a big it's quite a big cast and, and crew. We've, uh, we've got uh, Hannah Reed who does set, and Paul Rain, who does the sound. Um, we've got Jeff operating and uh, Travis McFarlane doing the lighting. Um, the actors we've got a we've got a cast of ten. They've, they're all some of them are from 16th Street. We've got people from uh, Eritrea in North Africa, from uh, from South Africa, and from Zimbabwe. People that hail from England. My, me myself, I'm from everywhere. I've I've got uh, I've got Jewish, German, Russian, Malaysian, Chinese blood in myself. So we're a very multicultural team, which is really nice, especially for independent theatre in here in Melbourne. There's been lots of uh, debate about not having enough. Um, a range of of uh, race. I don't like using that word race. I, I, that's another thing that that we're trying to do with this play is we're all one people, really, because wrongful convictions comes down to racial prejudice. So we're try, the, the play really just tries to show that we're all just one people. But um, in that sense, uh, we do have a lot of people that are from different parts of the world. Um, uh, yeah, we've, we've we've assembled just a great cast that are very committed. I mean, they're all working for profit share. They're all doing it for the cause. And as I, uh, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this, but the, the proceeds that I make from from this show are getting donated to Innocence International and also Liberation Prison Yoga, which which works for rehabilitation programs in prisons around New York. And hopefully, I'll be bringing that into Australia very soon. The production is called The Exonerated, presented by the Soul 3 Company. It's on at Chapel Off Chapel in Paran from the 20th of May until the 7th of June. You can book tickets and get more info at www.chapeloffchapel.com.au. And if you'd like to know more about the Soul 3 Company, www.sol3company.com.au. Andre, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you very much. Watts with you on Smart Arts here on Triple R. Now, as you know, this show tends to be focused on what's happening in the Melbourne art sector, but we also like to look at what's going on internationally uh, because the arts is an ecology and everything is connected, and uh, as well as looking at what's happening in Melbourne weekly and day-to-day, consequently we sometimes look at what's going on in galleries in uh, regional Victoria or festivals interstate. And speaking of interstate, joining me on the line is the Artistic Director of the Festival of Voices in Hobart, Tony Bonnie. Tony, good morning. 
Richard, and good morning, Melbourne. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the Festival of Voices, it is a music-focused festival rather than a, a more general arts festival, but it has a rather unique slant, I do believe. Oh, it, it does. I mean, we, we're, as a festival, we're now in our 11th year, and it started off, um, obviously, um, uh, back in the mid-noughties, uh, um, uh, primarily focused on uh, kind of choral, a cappella, um, and, and ensemble singing, and um, which is a, uh, was seen by its original um, kind of founder as a, uh, as a, I suppose, a niche, niche opportunity. There wasn't a kind of a major choral um, and singing festival. Um, existing in Australia in that way, um, and so it, uh, it, it it was kind of formed to kind of meet this opportunity in both uh, linking in with the University of Tasmania's uh, Conservatorium of Music, but also to satisfy the original director's um, uh, one of his lovely ambitions, which um, he still goes around doing, and that's setting off huge bonfires in the middle of cities. So um, <laughs> we have both this kind of um, uh, high-end, high artistic input. Um, uh, choral and, and singing workshop program and a, um, uh, every year a bonfire that we set off in the middle of um, Salamanca um, Place which normally attracts about 5,000 people to come in and we, we do this thing called the Big Sing which uh, encourages everyone to come out and we all sing the song a bit like a Christmas carol but fortunately the uh, the music repertoire tends to be Australian contemporary um, uh, songwriting which is kind of nice. Since that time um, the festival certainly has grown um, into more of a, a, a song and a singing festival broadly and um, this year um, in particular we uh, have certainly pushed the boundaries of, um, of where we see a cappella and group singing heading. Now not only are you pushing the boundaries uh, of singing but you're also physically pushing the boundaries oh, yeah. of the Festival of Voices because uh, you're expanding up into Launceston this year. Indeed, I mean we, we, we uh, I mean it's ironic for a festival that firmly sees itself as a niche um, provider and, and we have no uh, kind of ambitions to be a um, you know an international arts festival or a kind of a, a state festival like 10 Days or Melbourne International or something like that but um, certainly our um, uh, demand for our um, style of programming has um, got to the point where people want us to do stuff and of course Tasmania is a is kind of a unique state in the sense that it is you know it is its own landmass and um, uh, it does prevent uh, provide some opportunities that you wouldn't normally get in other states I'm, I used to work in Western Australia and kind of to get from uh, uh, one town to the next town is kind of five six hours drive um, whereas here um, between Launceston and Perth is a two hour between Launceston and Hobart of course is a two and a bit hour drive so it kind of makes sense if we can to um, um, program um, uh, across the state and uh, in that regard you've beat uh, uh, mofo and dark mofo to the punch because i know they had planned to expand to <laughs> launceston last year and then had to retract and focus back in hobart so uh, uh, score one for the festival of voices i well, have to say look it, it, life's not a competition, but it is an, it is an interesting um, uh, opportunity. But there is also the um, uh, it's the, the, the land between um, Hobart and Launceston is regarded a little bit like the Rubicon. It's very hard to cross. So um, 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 hopefully 
our, our, our venture north will be a, um, a successful one for all parties involved. I hope so. <laughs> now, um, given that the Festival of Voices does have this focus on the human voice as an yep. instrument, which is one yep. of the things that fascinates me, the, and having the last time I visited Hobart, I did unfortunately miss the festival, but strolling around looking at some of the, the beautiful buildings down there, the cathedrals and so yeah. forth, the, the sense of history that's already palpable in the streets, yeah. the idea of then taking those venues and turning them into concert venues for mm. the festival to hear kind of mass raised voices in uh, the, yeah. the harmony that the human voice can create singing on mass in uh, some of uh, some beautiful architectural spaces strikes me as a, a really rare and uh, and beautiful opportunity Look, it is. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer um, in, in, you know, whether you want to use the word culture or arts or um, those kind of uh, terms actually uh, only exist through um, not only the kind of combining of people or the meeting of people, but also the combining of people in spaces. And so the idea of actually having people working in these kind of unique environments and, um, you know, even the fact that we start as a festival in midwinter and, of course, you know, the day um, it's snow, um, cold, you know, to get people out act, um, participating in that kind of weather it kind of brings a certain interesting slant to... Um uh, to our program and um, um, certainly activating the old City Hall. Um, this year we're using Theatre Royal, which of course is um, Australia's oldest performing arts venue and I think it's been operating since 1837. You know, so using these pr- these spaces to um, kind of house these programs is kind of really um, a good value for the um, festival. And I mean, we make a joke that the Festival of Voices could have only started in Hobart because where, in, where else in Australia would you be allowed to set off a bonfire in the middle of a... Um, uh, what is predominantly our kind of retail restaurant strip, you know. It's, um, and we haven't burnt anyone or destroyed any buildings yet, so uh, <laughs> oh, there's we, we feel, there's we still feel time. pretty confident about it. Yeah. There's still time to uh, burn a building down or two and then <laughs> sing gloriously as it goes down in flames. Uh, yeah, well, now, yeah, more yeah. seriously, um, one of the things that fascinates me about the program for the Festival mm-hmm. of Voices this year that really caught my eye, um, heavy metal a cappella. Indeed, Van Canto. Um, the, uh, the, the, it, if we're a niche, niche festival, I would say that they are certainly a niche um, uh, musical act um, on the world stage. Um, the band formed 10 years, 10, 11 years ago as a, um, a traditional heavy metal band, um, and I think they worked out that um, they had an opportunity to um, eschew their instruments, and, um, and, and they have a punchline that their um, kind of instruments are, are overrated. So basically they go to stage uh, with a uh, drummer and you're allowed a percussionist or or drums in a cappella, within the a cappella rule book, I believe. Um, And they no longer have bass, guitar or keyboards. They have five singers um, and they have developed a a style of performance where three of the singers kind of mimic um, the instrumentation lines and then they have two singers, male and female song, and their, their range, uh, their repertoire uh, covers Metallica um, and um, Iron Maiden down to the more kind of um, uh, stadium rock numbers of uh, Europe and, uh, you know, the Bonnie Tyler songs as well as the kind of Celtic ballads and I believe they're currently working on a, um, a concept album like all heavy metal acts have to so they are a legitimate heavy metal act of um, a kind of a fantasy novel book um, album tie-in and this is all done with voices. Um, they play rock stadiums 50, 60,000 people, they have rep- uh, supported Ramstein. you know they are serious 
heavy metal artists just with no instruments. Yeah. Now, you've also got Sweet Honey and The Rock uh, yes. performing, who are perhaps the, I guess, at, at the opposite end of the scale from uh, Van Canto in terms of acapella artists. They are internationally uh, renowned yes. and, and with a much more popular appeal. Yeah, and look, I mean, we, we um, uh, a large part of our um, um, audience has always been the kind of uh, serious group singing world music, a cappella, gospel and sacred um, style, and Sweet Honey and the Rock are basically the, the, um, um, the top of the heap in that respect. I think the joke is that any choir, any, any group ensemble um, in the world will have a Sweet Honey and the Rock arrangement of a song in their repertoire because it's, it's um, um, that... Uh, they're that significant. They've been around since 1973. Um, they uh, sang at Obama's inauguration. I think Michelle uh, Obama cites them as one of her favourite bands of all time. I think they sang at Nelson Mandela's birthday. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're that kind of act. Um, certainly tie in uh, civil rights, social activism and music um, and ensemble work together, which of course is the other aspect of group singing. It, 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 I think Brian Eno um, makes the comment that group singing is important because one of the few times you, you forget about the, the individual and you start thinking about the whole group and, and, and the whole community when you sing um, in that um, concept. So uh, certainly Sweet Honey and the Rock are a significant um, act to have coming to Hobart. Um, they um, are doing gigs kind of elsewhere in the country kind of through us bringing them in, but um, it's, it's great to have them coming down. And they're also and they're doing... performing in Launceston, which will be a, a, a nice opportunity as well. And they're also do, uh, providing workshops, which is another aspect yes. of the festival, that there is a workshop program for serious aficionados of choral singing and a cappella well, music. Yeah, look, the, 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 while, while every festival likes to say that they're kind of different to every, every other festival, um, we, we, we feel as though we can justifiably say that the the bulk of our festival program is actually um, uh, undertaken through um, our accredited workshop programs with the university. So people come, the artists spend five, six days working with um, singers from all around the country um, and some international singers who come in. Um, they will spend, um, and this is with Van Canto, with Sweet Honey the Rock or our um, uh, choral uh, uh, David Lawrence doing Haydn's creation they'll spend four to five days working with them and then they'll perform as part of their show so um, say with Van Canto you come down to the workshop you perform on stage with them um, at, at, at their concert which is quite a rare It's a fantastic opportunity, opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Now there's also of course uh, cabaret performances such as the uh, the splendiferous Meow Meow uh, yes. uh, yes. uh, Matthew Mitchum's uh, yes. one man cabaret show as well uh, yes. based, on, based on his autobiography so there's a vast range of, of uh, musical singing styles represented yeah. at the Festival of Voices this year. Yeah. The, um, look, uh, I mean, Meow's a, a great example. I mean, when uh, we, uh, we're actually working with Meow, so not only is she doing a show um, uh, at the Theatre Royal, which is um, going to be quite a rare treat, as I said, but um, we've actually commissioned her to write um, <clears throat> what we call the love song for Tasmania for this year. Um, last year we commissioned Tex Perkins to write um, uh, that, and this year, um, yeah, so uh, Meow, we haven't heard it yet. We're still waiting to hear what it is, but each year we commission an artist to write a, a particular song in their own style to, um, uh, uh, to reflect 
um, that unique aspect of um, uh, of Tasmanian life. So um, uh, I know she's currently been in, in. I think she's just come back into Australia, but she was in New York and uh, Oregon and San Francisco working on the song with um, other artists. So we're looking forward to hearing that. Um, well, meow meow is a force of nature. So I meow can't, meow is a force of nature. <laughs> I and, can't um, begin to imagine what she will sing, but uh, no, a no, love song, and, and, and that will be the joy of it. Um, Within the program, uh, certainly uh, Matthew uh, Matthew Mitchum, uh, Lady Rizzo coming in from uh, New York, a, a cabaret artist. We have the inimitable Jeff Duff, I think, for his first time appearance in Hobart since probably his Cush days um, back in the 70s. Um, uh, Christy Hughes, you know, it's a great list of, um, uh, I suppose, a broad cabaret um, program. And, of course, we started doing the cabaret program about three, four years ago under the uh, uh, artistic direction of Chris Stewart, who I believe is now up in... Um, up at the Powerhouse. Powerhouse, that's yeah. right. So, you know, uh, the, the, we like the idea of transforming the City Hall in the, in the middle of winter into some place um, kind of nice and cosy and, and giving, a, 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 I suppose, a broader range of that musical experience. The other side of things that we're doing this year, I think, which links in nicely with Van Canto, is, is more of a contemporary music program and um, the... Um, the program called Keep One Eye on the Stranger, which um, is where hot housing uh, 10 young uh, Tasmanian musicians for three days with uh, Wescar. And um, and they'll be presenting the results of that kind of program at the Theatre Royal as well um, on the Tuesday night of the festival, which we think is a nice um, start of um, starting a new stream of, I suppose, contemporary music engagement um, within the same framework of, of reciprocity and, and, and workshops and um, connecting people. Lots of reasons to get down to Tasmania this year for the Festival of Voices, which is running from the 3rd until the 12th of July uh, in Hobart and the 14th to the 16th of July in Launceston. Tickets are on sale now at festivalofvoices.com. We've been chatting with Artistic Director Tony Bonney. Tony, many thanks for joining us here at Triple R today. Thank you very much. Now, something I wanted to let you know about, uh, the Rivers of China, you may have heard an interview on Triple R about that play. It's a rarely performed Australian play that's uh, opening at Theatre Works in St Kilda tomorrow night. Now, I have a bit of an interest in uh, Australian theatre that is rarely performed for one reason or another, uh, and one of the great classics, which is very rarely staged, is Rusty Bugles by Sumner Locke Elliott, written uh, and rather controversially staged in the... written in 1948 and staged in the 40s. Um, charged and uh, threatened with obscenity, for example, amongst other things. It's uh, a play about the experiences of army life, and it's the day-to-day banality of army life in, a, in an isolated army depot uh, in the Northern Ter- Territory in 1944. This is uh, a production of Rusty Bugles. is being staged by the Playhouse Players, who are a 
a community uh, theatre company uh, based in the, uh, I guess, eastern Melbourne. So their production of Rusty Bugles is on from now. It's uh, kicked off on the 16th of May. It's running through until the 30th of May uh, and is being staged at the Richmond Theatrette in Church Street, Richmond. So if you've ever wanted to see a production of the rarely performed uh, but acclaimed Rusty Bugles by Sumner Locke Elliott, uh, who also wrote Careful He Might Hear, you. Uh, I suggest you jump online playhouseplayers.org.au and you'll find a little bit more information about the production and how to book for it. The Dancing on the Radio team, Gerard Van Dyke and Joe Lloyd, have joined me in the studio. Good morning to you both. Morning. Morning. It's lovely to have you both back. It's been kind of like a solo effort yeah. one way or the other over the last Hasn't week. it? Yeah, it has. It's a bit of a reunion. I think we had you in solo and then Jez in solo. Yeah. And yeah so good to Someone keeps the fort going with now you. We're, now it's back to a trio, Richard. Hooray. Trio. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's been a busy couple of weeks for contemporary dance in Melbourne. Yeah. That, yeah. We, um, uh, you and I were talking last Thursday and then... Uh, oh, you know, fortnight Thursday ago, and then I think that night we went and saw um, Sydney Dance Company, um, and uh, we saw a double bill um, called Frame of Mind. Did you get to see Frame I of Mind? I did get to see Frame of Mind. I was glad I got to see some Forsyth. So was I, because and I mean, because as Jez just said, it was a double bill. So a William Forsyth work first, followed by a new work by Raphael Bonicella, the artistic director mm. of the company. And for me, that Forsyth work was sublime. It really was. I think I started the sheer beauty of it made me start tearing up in the first couple of minutes. Just the combination of of the imagery and the that that wonderful piece of music mm. that, that it just on a on a loop essentially which somehow uh allowed you to uh it lulled you but it also stirred you and um to me that was kind of the magic of the piece and um the interactions and the short bursts of choreography and it what what all that allowed you to do was see relationships on stage forming and i think with um such formal um dance vocabulary that i don't often doesn't come really it's not really apparent and i thought it was and it's an old work yeah. too it's you know it's like 25 years old or something or 20, um so uh, it's very impressive very impressive it was beautiful beautifully performed and i've been thinking this also joe sorry to cut you off. no um, you're excited it's uh, good that you know i think that city dance company are one of the few companies in Australia that could pull off Forsyth that well with such strong classical line and still release and fluidity. Yeah, true. I think the um, the dancers uh, were amazing in that, you know, there was five of them and then in the second piece we got to see them come back with the rest of the ensemble and it was really clear that those five that had done the Forsyth work in the first half of the show were the strongest and leaps and bounds ahead almost like i thought wow but you know mm. charmaine yap was just exquisite i was like oh, wow yes, she, i forgot that you were but she was also she didn't perform on the night that we saw oh, her. So they, yeah. two they, they yeah. had two casts alternating night by night yeah. a, a, a dance f- a colleague in sydney um had urged me to actually go back and see it the second night uh-huh. if i could so i could see it performed by the the alternate kind of alternate mob which it makes sense to have second cast as you know with a company that size that's exactly what you would do yeah and i mean i just think more forsyth can can we see more forsyth which is interesting jez that you say that company can pull it off because 
there is that tradition in his work and almost when the lights came up I, I'd forgotten that his earlier works were so driven with this classical base you know because I hold fondly in my memory a piece of his three atmos- atmospheric studies which takes the dancers into a different territory physically mm. which isn't as clearly classically based mm. but I was, I was talking to Prue Lang who was one of the original performers of that work um, who worked with Forsyth when he was making that piece and she said you know they did an amazing amazing job the sydney dance company and she said that they didn't actually work from video to learn it which no, they i had, think's wonderful they had two uh choreographers come to sydney and work with them on yeah. it to recreate the piece and mm. which perhaps then ensured that it had the emotional depth uh of the the, the, the piece needed to suit the the it's the gavin Bryer's uh piece of music jesus blood never failed me yet mm. um which is uh, a homeless guy singing just recorded and looped with a uh, a string uh piece slow building underneath it but never detracting from the dance with the music or or overpowering it and vice versa just an exquisite piece of work and then unfortunately for me the second half the Raphael Bonicella piece um, uh, which frame of mind from which the double bill takes its title Mm. I found I really wish the programming order had been reversed that we'd started with that started with 17 dancers on stage and then ended with the the much more simple pure uh, quintet because the comparison one was this subtle beautiful piece of work and the other one just to me felt busy and crowded and lacking the the depth of artistry and emotion that uh, that quintet had yeah it was a shame that the set kind of took over a lot of the space because they did look squashed and that but that was clearly <laughs> deliberate uh, yeah. that they wanted that sense of constraint from the set but yeah just i just if, didn't if, read just well like you've got to have fewer dancers on stage or something and i'd hate to have to put you know like like draw a line on a rule or something like that but it it looked squashed it looked crammed it looked like the dancers were struggling to fulfill the movement to its you know capacity um and uh it, it therefore it sort of detracted from that depth as you were saying i totally agree with you on that um uh still uh, you know they are a beautiful company to watch i think so, so and i think um this initiative of like bringing in another work is really great like i know stephanie lakes worked on them gideon excuse me worked on them and you just sort of think yeah he's open to what else australia's got in terms of choreographers and more of that you know on these able passionate bodies you know and also look just to see 17 dancers on stage is something we rarely get to see um in in dance in australia but certainly contemporary dance like six dancers maybe eight um if we're lucky so to see a mass of bodies like that one of uh, the uh, major performing arts companies that will be uh um, considering (laughs) the new options well and one of the major that they are one of the major performing arts company they are siloed from the cuts to the australia council Mm. protected from those cuts which we were I was discussing earlier with Angela Conquer from Dance House. So, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a whole conversation. Maybe we'll have another time. Yes. Uh, well, there is something to add to that for tomorrow. Oh, yes, of at course. At 1.30, if people want to get behind um, their passion, they can actually go to ACCA and join in with a um, national... Um, a dance protest over the cuts yes. to the Australia Council funding. Yep, at 1.30pm tomorrow yes. at the forecourt outside ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Mm. Now, um, as well as Sydney Dance Company uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jez, you and I uh, also went to see Rotunda, performed by the New Zealand Dance Company. Yes. The artistic director of whom was a guest on the show. Yeah, yeah, that was a bit ago. of... That was a thrill, actually, having her in the studio, talking about the work and then going and seeing it. <laughs> um, uh, what did you think of the work itself? Um, well, there was 
there was this very obvious theatrical effect in the work that was um, that actually seemed to fail on the night that I saw it. Whereas the night I saw it, it worked perfectly. Yeah, yeah, we had this conversation. And, and I, so, look, I saw the potential of that. And so, and just to put into context, um, there was a very thin, very thin piece of like chiffony kind of material and a really long kind of piece that hung from the... A banner. Uh, a banner, like hung from the ring, uh, the rig, the, the lighting rig. And then it unclipped, but there were all these um, fans around the space and they blew centrally, all the, you know, all facing inwards. And that kept it on the air and it kept flowing around like it was some mysterious spirit, essentially. And it was, and when it did work for like a split second, it was absolutely beautiful. But then it just kept falling to the ground and getting caught on things. Whereas <laughs> the night I saw it, it was it, because the banner began with the names of the dead projected upon it. And then the, uh, so it looked like a red banner, blood red with the names of the dead in stark white lettering. And then that backlight switched off as the cloth dropped and it just became this white piece of cloth falling to the ground but as Jess says caught in, in, in gusts of air and literally dancing as if it were the spirits of the dead caught uh, and dancing before us. It was a poignant and beautiful mm. and theatrically simple trick but when it worked it worked beautifully and they opened and, and when it didn't. And when it, but <laughs> so do you think it was a technical hitch? I suspect yeah. the night Jess saw it. Yeah, they I think it. there was one or two fans not working so like the the spiral of air. No momentum. Yeah. 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 And they opened and closed the piece with that. So it it began as a sense of of loss, but then at the end it becomes almost a sense of hope. Hope, that's right. Um, uh, And for me, the... The, the choreography itself in some ways was one of the weakest parts of this show. Hmm. Um, it felt quite basic, quite, um, ben- not banal choreography, but almost heavy and unimaginative compared yeah. to the Forsyth work, which I'd seen the night before, oh, particularly. But there were some beautiful vignettes. There was a really poignant vignette between a man and his best friend who'd just been shot and killed in war. Um, and that's right, he was moving the body he around. He was moving the body, and, yeah. and trying to stand it, trying to lift it, yep. carry it on his shoulders. That was mm. Quite intense and beautifully done. Mm. And there was another sequence involving um, uh, a man who'd returned home from war, transformed by the experience, shell shocked, and the the dance that he, uh, the a duet between him and the, uh, the a female character portraying his wife, her trying to bring him back into humanity, trying to to um, uh, ease his pain. That was danced really beautifully as well. Mm. But some of the other choreography. Yeah, look, I, I the, um, and especially so there were. Other than those moments, there were two other kind of main moments, and one was um, when all the men were on stage together in you know, their pre-going to war camaraderie kind of thing, and you know, very playful, playful, and it was a bit stereotypical, and and but still fun, you know, like they got the laughs and um, some had some funny moments, and they they threw around this giant um, sort of marching baton. And uh, one stage it flew into the actual uh, the um, the brass orchestra, and uh, of course, whenever they made a mistake, because they flew, they threw the fly across the stage quite high, and if they ever screwed that up, they would get down and do a bunch of push-ups. So that happened at one stage, and I thought that's that's fitting. Um, so that was entertaining. Except the other sort of major choreographic part of it was um, all the women on stage together, and the choreography that they had. And I don't know any other way to ex- to describe it, but it kind of looked colonial or it looked of an age that was... There was a definite sense, because this was uh, a work set 100 years ago, yes, so they were trying yeah. to recreate yeah. kind of dance yeah. traditions of an earlier era. And um, I'm not sure that that worked as a, as, a, as a technique, as a method of, you know, portraying a time or an era. It just um, it looked kind of a bit like bad choreography. <laughs> 
but it's hard I, to do that, but, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, choreography. Yeah. <laughs> but it was nonetheless, it was a fascinating opportunity to see uh, the New Zealand Dance Company, who are quite a young company. Yes, they're young, but they're great. Some beautiful movers. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. It's like Sydney Dance. You know, they're close by, so they should. We should exchange. We should see them a bit more. I often. hope that we will see more kind of uh, New Zealand cultural exchange. Otherwise, yeah. I'm just going to have to scrape some money together and fly over to the Christchurch International Arts Festival or something to try and see oh. more. Wouldn't that be fun, though? I'd love to. If, if anybody yeah, in New Zealand is listening, let's go live us, from New Zealand. Like, yeah. We'd love to do a show from your <laughs> festival. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't seen any other dance in the last couple of weeks. Is uh, any, has there been anything else on that you guys have caught? It's been a little quiet. Yeah, except for those major events. Um, no, there hasn't been anything smaller. In individual oh actually you know what there is one thing that i saw a number of weeks over a month ago now and i hadn't reported on it um i'll talk about it really quickly joseph simons did a solo has made a solo work and it's been touring around australia i think it might still be going it's called first things first and i saw it at gasworks um he is a an extraordinary solo performer he's a young guy has bucket loads of energy and um a musculature to kind of match he uh is a beautiful dancer and um, a, a fantastic character. He he basically greets the audience in the auditorium before the show, uh, sorry, in the foyer before the show, and says, oh, we're going to get to know each other. So 20 minutes, talk to strangers, go. And, you know, go, okay, wow, we're going to meet some people, we have another drink and blah, blah, blah. And then you go into the theatre and... He's on stage, and the way he performs is almost like a stand-up comedian to this to the audience. But some of it's movement, um, and it's a really stark kind of stylized set. Um, it's been touring, so it almost all fits into a suitcase, and you know very well. Um, and uh, there's some great storytelling in it, and there's some beautiful choreography. And again, you know, I said he's t- quite an amazing technical dancer. Yeah, he's exquisite. He's um, got so the skills. Just look out for Joseph Simons. He's got many, many more great things to come. I reckon. And What's coming up that people need to know about? Uh, just uh, to uh, remind people that earlier in the show we spoke about the Dance House program for 2015, which has just been launched as a beautiful object. Mm, hasn't it? Um, also is a an event called um, Body Electric Presents Man, I Feel Like a Woman. This is, um, I have to say, this is the love child of... Um, or the love child. This is this is the passion of a particular choreographer, maker, um, and educator called Jade Duffy, whom I'm a big admirer of, and she has essentially um, invited adults from all walks of life that are not professionals uh, professional dancers to learn choreography to create their costumes um, and present something that's very theatrical and, and you know it is such a great thing to see it's a spectacle these people are so excited and they're so focused i've seen a couple of events and jade has done an incredible job yeah she really has and anyway so it's on um man i feel like a woman is on uh saturday the 23rd uh so in a couple of days at melbourne pavilion um if you go to is that at the showgrounds yeah, it's at the showgrounds. Um, you can purchase tickets by going to Body Electric Dance Studios, that's all one word, .com.au. Find out more about it. And there is a Facebook page also, um, Body Electric Presents Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Go searching for that and you'll find out more. The other thing that's coming up Monday night, the 25th of May, um, is Dance Speaks, which is a evening that comes up every Monday, every two months, I think it is. Um, Rebecca Jensen is the highlighted uh, dance artist and it is more of a performance lecture. Um, so there's a bit of 
uh, a hint that maybe if you go along you might become involved in it. Mm. But Rebecca Jensen's a young dance maker and she's quite fascinating. I've worked with her a, a lot and I've seen her make her own work. She presented Overworld with Sarah Aiken in the recent Dance Massive. Um, I think she's really fascinating and Dance Speaks is a really great platform that I think has discovered what it wants to be as it goes along. So it used to be a little bit more formal, sort of there's the audience, here's the dance makers talking about their you know, projection through time in the, in terms of their process, you know, artists such as Philip Adams, Shelley Lassica, I've done one. Um, and they've got a couple more coming up with some fantastic um, dance makers. They've got Lucy Guerin coming up, Tim Darbyshire yeah. is going to do one. So it's good to um, check out Dance Speaks, their website, or if you want to check them out, they're also on Facebook. And that happens at West Space, um, Monday the 25th at 7pm. Yeah. Uh, I should also let people know that the St Petersburg Ballet are coming to Australia presenting their production of Swan Lake. That's happening in June. And something else I've just discovered, thanks to the power of Google, did you know that the 24th of May, coming up very soon, mm-hmm. is International Tap Dancing Day? I uh, did not know this. So get those shoes out. Get those I've, shoes I've out actually, and tap. Have you got tap shoes anymore, I've Joe? Hidden away, yes. Yeah, so have I. I think you should break them out and uh, do a bit of tap dancing on the 24th of May. <laughs> uh, there's one last thing I just wanted to really quickly mention. Um, on Saturday, the, uh, in a couple of days' time, the Space Dance and Arts Centre um, are hosting uh, Yellow Wheel there, is hosting its, um, I think it could be annual... Um, by Adam Wheeler, um, a... What is it? It's a it's a day of making and then performing at the end of the day. So it's make a dance piece in 12 hours. And um, young dancers aged between 12 and 26 are invited. Um, you can go uh, and then, of course, if you don't want to be part of that, you can go and watch the show, and that's very cheap. Um, but it's at 8 p.m. the show, uh, 7.30... Um, uh, oh, sorry, the 8th... 7.30 at the Space Dance and Arts Centre, um, upstairs 318 Chapel Street in Paran. Cool. That's always a bit on the dance calendar. There is, isn't good. there? Good, good, good. Cool. Well, lovely to see you both. Great to we'll see you, you, Richard. In a fortnight's time. Can't cool. wait. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.